0: That's scary. (laughs) When I think where that was filmed at, it's even more scary. I wasn't with them when they filmed it. Would not step in there. I'm afraid if I went in, they would keep me. But you're probably wondering what's behind the door, so let's go ahead and check and see what's behind the door. Well, it's a skeleton behind the door this is Sally the skeleton might be Sam the skeleton I'm not sure but it's a skeleton in the closet and the truth of the matter is isn't it we all have skeletons in our closet things that we're ashamed of things that we don't want anyone to know about things that if they came to light they would embarrass us don't we Sure we do. We all have skeletons in our closet. But the question I want us to answer over the next three weeks is this. Does God have skeletons in his closet? Are there things that that God has done in the past? Are there things that God will do in the future that he's embarrassed about? He's ashamed of? He really doesn't want you to know about? Now, I don't think any of us in this room would say out loud, God has skeletons in his closet, and yet I think that many of us live that way. There are things that we read about in the Bible that concern us. There are things that we read about in the Bible that trouble us, that we don't quite understand, and we think to ourselves, is this a skeleton in God's closet? And so as we get started in this series this morning, I want to share with you a saying that some of you have said before, and I want you to get this in your mind so you say it with me. Okay, so you repeat out loud after me, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. So God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. When we don't understand what God is doing, God is good. When we're confused about what God is doing, God is good. God is good all the time. And so as we go through this series, you need to plant in your mind and you need to plant in your heart that foundational truth that God is good and everything that God does is good I love what Francis Chan says about this he says like the nervous kid who tries to keep his friends from seeing his drunken father I have tried to hide God at times think about that like the nervous kid who doesn't want his friends to see his drunken father he says there have been times that I've treated God that way but who do I think I am The truth is God is perfect and God is right in all he does. I am a fool for thinking otherwise. God does not need nor want me to cover for him. There is nothing to be covered. Everything about him and all he does is perfect. So as we look at these topics over the next three weeks in God's Word, topics that are confusing at best, concerning at worst, I want you to hold on to that truth. God is good all the time, and God is perfect in everything He does. Now, the first topic we're going to talk about, I think, is the one we struggle with the most, and that is the topic of hell. A lot of people in the world, and the truth of the matter is, a lot of people in the church have a problem with hell. And to be honest, there are a lot of ideas out there about hell today. In 2006, a guy by the name of Bill Wise wrote a book entitled 23 Minutes in Hell. And in that book he chronicled what he said was his 1998 trip to hell. And in the book he says that hell has a temperature of 300 degrees, zero humidity. The location is the center of the earth. He says there were reptilian-looking demons, 15 feet tall, who rule over and torture humans. There are rats the size of dogs. There are snakes as big as trains. Now, is that what hell is going to be like? Is it going to be in the center of the earth? Is the temperature going to be 300 degrees? Is there going to be zero Humidity? Are there going to be 15 feet tall demons that are ruling over us and torturing us? Is that what hell's going to be like? For several years, we did a play here at Northside called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. And that play gives us a picture of the beauty of heaven. But it also gives us a picture of the horrors of hell. And and in that play, we see people going off, rejoicing as they enter into heaven, but we also see people being dragged by demons into hell. They are kicking and they're screaming and they're begging God for mercy and forgiveness. Is that what it's going to be like? Are the people that are cast into hell, are they going to be begging God for forgiveness? asking god for mercy but god is going to look at them and say it's too little too late i'm sorry you're going to burn in hell forever is that how it's going to be charles templeton who was a contemporary of billy graham a friend of billy graham he was one of the founding leaders of use for christ international he turned his back on the christian faith and back in the 1990s he wrote a book entitled farewell to god and And in that book, this is what he said about God and about hell. He said, if there is any single scriptural teaching that negates the concept of a loving God, it is a doctrine of eternal punishment in hell. A place of torture for those who refuse to do or even fail to do what God wants them to do. It is a monstrous concept. That's what Charles Templeton said. Another theologian said this. He said, how can one imagine for a moment the God who gave his son to die on the cross would would install a torture chamber somewhere in the new creation in order to subject those who reject him to everlasting pain? And that's what a lot of people believe about hell. That's what a lot of people believe about God. They believe that God is this sadistic God who cannot wait To torture forever and ever and ever those who have rejected him, those who have refused him, those who have rebelled against him. God is is kind of like this communist social dictator on steroids. But instead of throwing us in a prison and torturing us until we die, God does that and tortures us for all eternity. Is that what God does? In one of my favorite books on the Christian life and Answers to Unbelievers, the book is entitled Letters from a Skeptic. It's written by Greg Boyd. It's a book that that chronicles these letters that Greg Boyd, a Christian, wrote to his agnostic father as he was journeying toward the Christian faith. And his father eventually became a believer. But as you can imagine, one of the the most difficult questions he had as he grappled with is there a God and is the God of the Bible God and is the Bible true is this question about hell is hell real and so he wrote his son a letter and that's one of the chapters in the book and and I want to read to you the letter that he wrote he said dear Greg I'm afraid I just have a little more difficulty suspending things than you do because I'm not yet 100% convinced that Jesus is God on earth like you are. I can't so quickly find solace for the nagging questions I have about hell. You settle on the love of God and suspend His wrath because you were already convinced about His love through Christ. But for me, Greg, the love and wrath are on the same level. One calls into question the reality of the other so I need to kick around this hell business a little more if I can make some sense out of this I feel like I will have gone a long way toward making Christianity more plausible to me your last letter put my mind a bit more at ease about who is going to hell but it didn't address the problem of hell itself this really is the most fundamental question for me the Bible paints a truly nightmarish portrait of this place does it not it's the place of fire and hot sulfur brimstone darkness torment And the thing supposedly goes on for all eternity. Now tell me, what the hell, excuse the pun, would be the purpose of torturing someone eternally? What's the point? Obviously, there's no lesson to be learned. This isn't corrective punishment. The person in hell has no hope of ever improving his character or situation. So is this sheer vengeance, pure retribution, unadulterated anger with no motive other than the pure divine delight of inflicting horror pain on a person don't get me wrong Greg there are plenty of people whom I wouldn't mind seeing in hell for a time but even I'd get tired of hearing Hitler scream after a couple of hundred years wouldn't the fun wear off after that I'd probably figure he's paid his debt to his victims and then I'd just kill him why doesn't God do that after a few hundred years he had had he'd have already made his point so why go with the pain why not just put the sinner out of their misery why torture just for the sake of torture and and do so eternally related to this is another question I don't see how heaven can go on as heaven while hell is burning down below would the knowledge that there are billions of people boiling in hot lava down below you throughout eternity kind of dampen the party spirit it seems as if this would present a problem, especially for an all-loving God who is supposedly in love with those poor, tortured souls. That must eat God up alive. Think what you'd feel like if one of your kids didn't make it. So it just doesn't make sense to me, Greg, and I'm just not at the point where I can pretend to suspend judgment about this. The character of God is on trial in my life, and this is a very relevant, and, and this is very relevant evidence which needs to be, Considered. Now this is written by an honest man Who has honest questions about God, faith, and hell And so the question we need to answer this morning is this Is hell a skeleton in God's closet? Now when we consider the doctrine of hell There are really only two alternatives to the biblical doctrine of hell One is annihilation The idea that that God destroys everyone who does not believe. God destroys everyone who, who refuses to trust in Jesus, who, who dies in rebellion, who continues to rebel against God. God destroys them. They cease to exist. Annihilation. And, and there are some denominations, some Christian churches that believe that, that, that God annihilates the sinner. The problem with that is, it goes against everything the Bible teaches about heaven and hell. It goes against everything the Bible teaches about God's judgment. And it goes against everything the Bible teaches about the soul of man, which the Bible says is eternal, which lives forever. And so annihilation isn't a viable alternative. The other alternative is the alternative of universalism. Universalism is the idea that everybody goes to heaven in the end. Christ died for all, therefore, eventually, one day, someday, everybody will end up in heaven. That's what Rob Bell believes. He wrote a book, Love Wins. And in that book, he says this, The love of God will melt every hard heart, and even the most depraved sinner will eventually give up their resistance and turn To God and so the idea that that one day over a period of time everybody will turn to God accept his love they will be redeemed they will be saved and everybody will spend eternity with God in heaven but what does the Bible teach because you see when it comes to hell we cannot base our belief on our perspective what we believe is fair, what we believe is logical, or what we believe is right. We're not God. And we don't know everything. And when we try to base our beliefs on our perspective, we are putting ourselves in the seat of God, and we can't do that. Jonathan Edwards said, The reason we find hell so offensive is because we are insensitive to sin. In other words, what he says is the reason we struggle with sin or hell is because we aren't troubled enough by sin in the world. And can I be honest with you? This idea that there is no hell is a relatively new belief. And it is a Western belief. If you live in places of the world where people have suffered, Violence and injustice at the hands of evil, wicked people. The only thing that can constrain these people is the hope that there is a God of judgment who will one day make things right. And so when we say we can't believe in hell, what we're saying is we have an improper view of sin or we have an improper view of God. Someone said it this way. The greatness of sin isn't determined by the sin that is committed, but by the one it is committed against. And what we need to understand is that all sin, first and foremost, is committed against our Creator. Sin is committed against the one who created us, who made us for a purpose And when we sin against him, what we are saying is we refuse your right to rule our life. We refuse the idea that you are God. And so we can't base our views on our perspective. Second, we can't base our views on what is popular or unpopular. Our 21st century mind has a hard time accepting hell, but the Bible even speaks about that. In Proverbs chapter 28, it says, evil people don't understand justice. Did you get that? People who are far from God, they don't understand justice. But then it goes on to say, but those who follow the Lord understand completely. You see, we can't base what we believe on our perspective. We can't base our belief on what is popular. We have to base our belief on the Word of God if we believe it is true. I love what Francis Chan said on this. He said, if hell is some primitive myth left over from conservative tradition, then let's set it on a dusty shelf next to other traditional beliefs that have no basis in Scripture. But, if it is true, if the Bible does teach that there is a literal hell awaiting those who don't believe in Jesus, then this reality must change us. Did you get that? If this is not just some tradition that the Bible doesn't really teach, if the Bible teaches it, then this belief that there is a hell has to change everything about us. So what does the Bible teach us about hell? Well, the Bible says a lot about hell. We don't have time to to go into everything it says. And so what I want us to do is look at two passages of Scripture. One is a story Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. And the other is an event that takes place toward the end of life as we know it in Revelation chapter 20. So first of all, the story that Jesus told in Luke 16. The story begins in verse 19. Jesus said there was a certain rich man who who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores as Lazarus laid there longing for scraps from the rich man's table the dogs would come and lick his open sores finally the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham the rich man also died and was buried and his soul went to hell there in torment he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side Rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted. Stop right there. Son, remember, in your lifetime you had everything you wanted. May I ask you a question? What is it you want? What is it you long for? What are the greatest desires of your heart? Some of you are living out your dream. Some of you are still longing for a yet to be fulfilled dream here on planet Earth. So, my question for you is what do you long for? Do you have the things that you want? Or are you still trying to fill those things that you want from things that come from this life? Because that's what this rich man did. He, he felt like the things of this world were the things that would bring him joy. So Abraham said, you had the good things in this life. Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. If someone is sent to them from the dead, they'll repent. they'll, They'll turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. In in other words, have you ever heard someone say, if I just had a little more evidence? If God, and we fill in the blank, if, if God wrote it out in the sky, I would believe. If God did this, I would believe. If God did this, I would believe. The rich man in hell said, if someone came back from the dead, my brothers would believe. Jesus said, no, they won't. And I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think Jesus did that, didn't he? Now that's the first story. The second is an story, it's an event. Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 and following. Revelation is the story of God's judgment upon a sinful world and when we get to chapter 20 we see this story of the the throne judgment of God and in verse 10 it says, then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet, Then, then they will be tormented, there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence and they found no place to hide. I I saw the dead both great and small standing before God's throne and the books were open including the book of life and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead and death and the grave gave up their dead and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This Lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown to the lake of fire. I want to give you three biblical truths. Like I said, we could spend literally months talking about what the Bible says about hell. But I think we can sum it up with three truths. The first truth is this, hell is real. Hell is real. There's some that say that hell is a myth, some people say that hell is a state of mind, but listen very carefully. If hell is a myth, if hell is a state of mind, that means heaven is a myth, heaven is a state of mind. You can't have one without the other. So if hell is a myth, heaven is a myth. If hell is a state of mind, heaven is a state of mind. Newsweek magazine several years ago had an article, and in that article it said this, hell is a subject too trite for serious scholarship. In other words, any educated person would have to dismiss hell because hell is just so unbelievable. That's the news. And yet, according to a 2014 Pew study about hell and the afterlife, 58% of U.S. adults believed in a place called hell. 58% of adults living in America believe in hell. Now, let me say this. If you talk to those 58%, most of them would probably say, but I'm not going there. And most of them would probably say, and nobody that I know or love is going there. Hell is for Osama Bin Laden. Hell is for Stalin. Hell is for Hitler. There is a hell, but but there's no one that I know. There's no one I love, and certainly I'm not going there. We have this idea that, that hell may be a real place, but it doesn't affect us. Now, the Bible speaks about hell often. From the very first book of the Bible to the very last book of the Bible, hell is mentioned. In the New Testament, two-thirds. Two-thirds of the teaching about hell come from the lips of Jesus. Two-thirds of everything we read in the New Testament about hell comes from Jesus. Tim Keller said, if If Jesus, the Lord of love and author of grace, spoke on hell more often and in a more vivid, blood curdling manner than anyone else, it must be a crucial truth. The truth is hell is real. And whether you believe in it, whether I believe in it or not, doesn't change the reality. Hell is a reality, hell is real. The second truth, hell is awful. Hell is awful. Now the question most people ask once they determine hell is real is they say, what is hell going to be like? Are the pictures that we read about in the Bible literal or are they metaphorical? In other words, when the Bible talks about hell and brimstone and lakes of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth and and all of these things, this outer darkness, is this symbolic, metaphorical, or is this literal? Well, well, let me ask you a question if I can. When we read the story in Genesis chapter 6 about God sending a flood to completely destroy the world because of the wickedness of man, was that literal or was that figurative? It was a literal flood, right? God destroyed the world because the wickedness of man had gotten so evil. When we read the story about Sodom and Gomorrah in Scripture, and we read about God raining down fire and brimstone from heaven, destroying these two cities and the plains around them because of the wickedness of men in that city, was that literal or was that figurative? was literal it wasn't a symbolic destruction of a city God destroyed the city and so the question we have to ask ourselves is why are we asking is it literal or is it figurative here's what you need to understand whenever the Bible speaks in terms of metaphor in the Bible The symbol, the metaphor, the figurative language is always seeking to describe something that is either so great or so horrifying that words can't describe it. And so they are using the most vivid words they can use. And so what we need to understand is if the Bible is describing hell in figurative terms, it is a figure that doesn't do the reality justice. Does that make sense? The reality is going to be far worse than the symbol could ever be. I I want you to listen to what several people said about this. Let me see if I can find it real quick. I may not be able to. Tim Keller said the, the reality will be far worse than the image. John Edwards said when metaphors are used in scripture about spiritual things, they fall short of literal truth and so understand if we think that it's figurative doesn't mean that it's not going to be as bad it means it's going to be worse now what can we know about hell from scripture three things first of all hell is a place of suffering in chapter 16 verse 23 it says in hell where he the rich man was in torment now I need you to understand something about torment there's a difference between torture and torment Torture is something that someone inflicts on someone else. Torment is self-inflicted. Do you understand the difference? Torture is when someone else does something to you outside. Torment is something that you bring upon yourself. And whenever the Bible talks about the suffering in hell, it always uses the terminology torment. In other words, everything that we are experiencing in hell in regard to torment is because of our own doing. Joshua Butler said this, he said, Hell is cruel, yet to blame the cruelty of hell on God is like an alcoholic blaming sobriety for the pain of addiction. That would be foolish, wouldn't it? I mean, for an alcoholic to say, it's not fair. That I'm an addict. Look at all these people living sober lives. It's just not fair. That's silly. You you can't blame sobriety for your addiction. Hell is a place of suffering, but the suffering is because of our own doing. Now the word that is used for hell in Luke 16, the word that is most often translated hell in the New Testament is the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna was, was a place, it was literally the Valley of Hinnom. And it was the place outside the city where they, they had pagan worship. It was the place where idolatry was, was practiced. It was the place where, where they literally presented human child sacrifices to these pagan gods. And so that's the valley of Hinnon, and that's Gehenna. But during Jesus' day, the valley of Hinnon, Gehenna, became a garbage dump. It was a place where all the refuse, all the trash, all the dead animals, all the people who were too poor to be buried were thrown. Their bodies lay there decaying. And so the fire was always burning. Why? To keep the disease from spreading. To keep it from infecting the people inside the city. And so the fire wasn't punishment. The fire was to contain the disease. And it was a place where the worms always had food to eat. It was a place where the dogs were always howling at night. It was a horrifying place. And that's the terminology that Jesus uses to describe hell, Gehenna. It is a place of suffering. Second, it's a place of sorrow. In verse 25, Abraham said to the rich man, Son, remember. Sorrow comes from remembering. Psychologists tell us we never forget anything we've learned or we've experienced. We may not be able to recall it. We may suppress it because it's painful to remember or we may forget it over time but we never actually forget those thoughts and one day we're going to remember everything. We're going to remember every word that was left unsaid. Every good deed that was left undone, every opportunity that was left unfulfilled, we're going to remember those things. And the Bible says that that's going to produce sorrow, it's going to produce anguish. It's a place of sorrow and it's a place of separation. Verse 26 says, and beside all this, between us and you, there's this great chasm that has been fixed. In other words, there's a separation between where you are and where we are and no one can Cross that. Paul described it this way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. He said, They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and His glorious power. Did you hear that? To be honest with you, the number one way that we can describe hell is eternal separation from God. Everything else, everything else is a byproduct of being separated from God. God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. Hell is described with what? Darkness. The light's not there. Hell is the absence of God. That's what hell is. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? His body was beaten to shreds, remember? Remember, he was kicked and beaten until he was bruised all over. Remember that the the crown of thorns was thrust upon his head. Remember that? Remember how the nails were were hammered into his hands and his feet? Remember that? But never on the cross did we hear him complaining about the physical agony, did we? What we heard Jesus say on the cross were these words, My God, my God, why Have you forsaken me? I I don't understand it, but somehow, some way, when Jesus was on that cross and all of the sin of the world came upon him, Jesus, the Son, was separated from God, the Father. Jesus took on hell for us. Jesus was separated from his Father, For us, we don't know what it's like to live in a place separated from God. Regardless of how bad it gets on planet earth, the Holy Spirit is still here. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is here holding back evil. But what's going to happen when God is removed? And understand, hear me, in hell, God's not going to be there. Hell is being separated from God forever. So hell is real, hell is awful, but here's the third truth, and this is the most important. Hell is the natural result of choosing to live our life apart from God. Everyone in hell has chosen hell. Let me say that again. Everyone in hell has chosen hell. Jonathan Edwards said, there is nothing that keeps wicked men from any mo- at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. In other words, we all deserve to be cast into hell at any moment. And the only thing that keeps us from there is God's love. There is no want in God's power to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. They desire to be cast into hell. So divine justice never stands in the way. Did you get that? God doesn't desire to cast people into hell. People desire to be cast into hell. I want you to hear me. Hell is simply the destiny of those who freely choose to live their lives separated from God. If I choose to live my life separated from God here on this earth, God will give me what I want for all eternity. You say, doesn't God want to punish the wicked? Let's see what God's word says. Ezekiel 18 verse 23, God says, I take no delight in the destruction of the wicked. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. John 3, verse 17, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. You see, we have to make a decision to live our life without him. John chapter 3, verse 19 says this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The Bible's clear. God wants us to go to heaven. God wants us to spend eternity with him. but many of us don't want to go to heaven at least not his heaven we want to live life our way you see many of you have this idea that at the judgment there are going to be all of these people who were saying to God God I am so sorry God I see the light now God I understand the truth now God forgive me. And God is going to say, I'm sorry, it's too little, too late. But the Bible nowhere indicates that. The Bible nowhere indicates that. The Bible nowhere tells us that that there are people that are going to be cast into hell that want to go to heaven with God. The Bible doesn't teach that. Let me give you an example. In Revelation chapter 16, God has brought his judgment upon the world. The world knows that this judgment has come from God. And God is bringing this judgment to get the world's attention. But I want you to notice what it says in chapter 16 verse 9. Everyone was burned by the blast of heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over all these plagues, they did not repent of their sins and turn to God and give Him glory. They know that this judgment is coming from God, but do they say, God, I'm sorry, forgive us? No. What do they do? They curse God. In verse 11 it says, And they cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores, but they did not repent of their evil deeds and turned to God. They knew that this was God's judgment. And yet they refused to repent. They refused to turn to God. They said, God, curse you. I don't want you. C.S. Lewis said, there are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Martin Luther said, God does not drag people to heaven by their hair. Folks, God doesn't send people to hell. God allows us to go to hell by our own free will. No one in hell is going to want to be in heaven worshiping God. Now, there are some of you here. Hear me. I want you to look. This is important. Because I'm telling you, there is a large portion of you who are lost. And you can call me judgmental. You can call me an angry old Baptist preacher. I think I've proven I'm none of those things. I'm just being real with you. There are a number of you who have never been born again. God's Spirit doesn't live in you. You've never been changed by the power of God. You have no desire to live for Jesus. And yet you think that coming to church or being dunked in a pool of water or calling yourself a Christian is going to get you to heaven. And so right here, right now, you know that your heart hasn't been changed. And yet what you're saying is this, well, this is good news for me. Because if I die then I can tell God at that point, I I want to live for you now, and I want to serve you now, and I want to follow you now, and I want to surrender you now. I love you now, but listen to me. Listen, what makes you think? What makes you think if you want to live your life your way right now that you're going to want to live God's way for all eternity? What makes you think that if you want to sit on the throne of your life right now and call your own shots and do it your way, what makes you think that for all eternity you're going to want God to sit on the throne? That's foolish. That's unthinkable. And the fact of the matter is, you're even thinking about it shows that your heart has never been changed. It's never been redeemed. Hell is going to be filled with people who love God passionately and desire only His perfect will. Heaven isn't about me. Heaven isn't about you. It's about Him. And if you want heaven to be about you, then you're not going to be there. Because it's not I wrote something down yesterday as I was preparing that I think is important hell does not involve God's refusal to redeem but our refusal to be redeemed you don't end up in hell because God says no end up in hell because you say no do you remember in Revelation chapter 20 we're closing this out but remember in Revelation chapter 20 Jesus comes back talk about this marriage feast of the lamb and all of that and Jesus sets up his earthly kingdom you remember talking about that in Revelation chapter 20 we call this a thousand year reign remember that Jesus literally is reigning on earth for a thousand years do you remember that you read that anybody know what I'm talking about A couple of you do. The Bible talks about that, this thousand-year reign where Jesus reigns. And so Jesus is reigning supreme. Purity reigns on earth. Holiness reigns on earth. God's will is being done on earth. But for some strange reason that is beyond our complete understanding, at the end of this thousand years, God says, okay, I'm going to unleash Satan one more time. Why does God do that? I don't know, but we learn something from it. Because we learned that those who had never been redeemed Whose hearts had never been changed After a thousand years of living in perfection What did they do? They turned on the perfect one And followed Satan Why doesn't God let everybody into heaven? I'll tell you why Because God wants to protect it For those of us who will be there I got to tell you I don't want sin in heaven. Sin's a royal pain in my rear end. It eats my lunch. I struggle with it daily. And I don't want it in heaven. I'm looking forward to the day where sin will be put to an end and Purity will reign, and the old nature will be gone completely, and I will be a new man from inside out totally and completely. I'm looking forward to that day, and I don't want people in heaven who are saying, hey, have a lot of fun doing this, because I want to worship Jesus forever, because he's worth it. What about you? what heaven's going to be what's hell going to be hell's going to be the opposite hell's going to be where we're seeking to sit on the throne and we can't hell's going to be where our sinful desires long to be met but they're never fulfilled And it's going to be that way forever and ever and ever because God will give us over to our sinful desires. And for all eternity, I believe, it'll get worse and worse and worse. The regret, the shame, the remorse, the pain, the horror. But you don't have to be there. Some of you want to be. You don't want to be in the fire. You don't want to be in the brimstone. You don't want to be with the weeping and gnashing. But you want to be on the throne. So you're going to be there. Or you can choose to surrender your life to Jesus. Submit to his will. And let him change you. Closing with this story. Suppose you have a rebellious son. And your rebellious son is 18 years old but he's at that point where he can't really take care of himself yet and he don't want to live under your rules and do not really live on your roof and so you've just had enough and so you sit back and say, okay son, this is it. If you're going to live under my roof, you're going to live by my rules. Do you understand? It's either this or you can get on the street. And your son thinks about it. And your son doesn't want to live under your roof. He wants to be on his own. Your son don't want to live under your rules. He wants to be on the throne of his life. But when he thinks about your your rules versus the street, he grudgingly submits, okay, I'll live by your rules, but I don't want to. I'll do what you say I've got to do so that I can live under your roof, but I don't want to. Some of us have this idea that heaven's going to be like that. So what do you want? Is your desire to live for Jesus completely and totally? Is your desire... To live under His rule and His reign? Is your desire to make Him known throughout the earth? Is your desire to decrease so that He can increase? What's your desire? Or is your desire to do your thing your way for as long as you can get by? leads to hell. I want you to bow your head we've gone long so I want to simply ask you this question do you know you're saved do you know Jesus has changed your life if he hasn't and you're here and you're saying I need to do that then today pray this prayer but it's not a matter of just praying this prayer it's humbling yourself before God so pray this prayer right now dear God I come to you today humbly acknowledging my sin my rebellion I'm sorry I'm tired of living my way I know I don't deserve your love but you love me nevertheless Jesus I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sins I believe you rose from the grave Today I'm giving my life to you. I'm trusting you to save me. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Change me. Make me new. From this point on, Jesus, I want to live for you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer.